Aloha. This is international baritone Quinn Kelsey, and this is the CBH Podcast. That's Quinn Kelsey right there. One of my best friends. I've known him for a long, long time, and um, you're never, never going to meet a more loyal friend than Quinn Kelsey. I was talking to him the other day, and he told me that he was... He was in Hawaii. He's uh, that's where his fam- family's from, and and um, he gets there quite a bit. And he's there for some family business and real life stuff. And and uh, we talked the other day, and he was on his way to go see a tattoo guy on the other side of the island. He was going to go take this drive, and of course, uh, I'm a tattoo guy, and I just I love this idea. And he told me it was a traditional Hawaiian tattoo. You know, they're not like. They're not using the fancy fast needle that you and I know. Like this is old school tools, like primitive tattooing, something that takes a long time. And from what I understand, hurts like hell, which I, of course, loved immediately. Like getting a tattoo is something I'm very interested in. The pain is some of the best parts, as odd as that sounds. And uh, he told me he was going to go do this. And I was immediately jealous, like, please, please. No, wait, wait, let's do this together. I will come to Hawaii so we can do this together. I've never met anybody. I don't think Quinn has a tattoo, actually. Maybe he does. I don't remember. I have six. I don't, I'm, you rarely meet anybody who has only one. Very few people have only one. If they do have one, they see it as a regret. But if, they, but if people don't, you know, if they have more than one, uh, they're like most people, just completely addicted and it's something about the process, like um, deciding. Sometimes it's decided quick. It's often decided quick. I'm not sure I've had a sober tattoo. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's a bad idea. I have no regrets, of course. Um, but there's something about the permanence of it. There's something about controlling you know, like you're in control of this. I often talk about like things I can control and a permanent mark on my body is something that I can like control to have. Like I'm going to do this. I have this thing and everybody starts out small. And then, like I said, I'd never met anybody who just has one very rare finding the place, finding the guy, feeling comfortable with the artist, deciding what it's going to be, deciding where it's going to be. And then you put yourself through this pain and it's not, it's not unmanageable pain. It's, it's pain that you wish would just go somewhere else. Like, okay, you can continue to do that. Just move it around or something. At some point, even though they're covering a large surface, you just keep feeling that needle. It feels like it's the exact same spot over and over and over again. You just wish the guy would move on to like a different part. But that's part of it too. Just like this agony, torture... Uh, I love this. I wish it would stop, but I love it, but I wish it would stop. Like it's probably all sex driven, like everything else. Right. I mean, let's be real. That's probably what it is. Uh, I have a big, not big. It's not big. I won't describe it as big, but I have a line on my shoulder that I got, uh, two summers ago in, in San Francisco and I love it. And it was spontaneous and I have zero regrets. Uh, I wish it was a little bit bigger, in fact, um, but uh, at the time it was exactly what was needed. And I went to the beach and I was in the middle of a great show. Maybe the the best thing I think I've ever been a part of was this Billy Budd in San Francisco. And I had been dreaming for this role. It was a, 
dream role and it was difficult to get to this production because I was doing something else that I needed to get out of in order to do it. And um, uh, I've never experienced a, a production that was more rewarding to me than this Billy Budd in San Francisco two summers ago. And I went to the beach in my day off and I was feeling uh, sad for myself, which is not uncommon when you're on the road all your, you know, all the time by yourself and, and, um, and it's easy to let the sadness creep in sometimes and it's okay to like, let it creep in sometimes. That's part of it too. And this all has a cost, right? There's a price to this. Anytime I start to feel bad about something involving my career, I go, there's a price. You want this fancy singing songs for a living life? There's a price. But anyway, on this particular day, I took a bottle of wine that was given to me by Bill Burden, a fantastic Cabernet. You're, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, you're already there in Napa country. And so he, he brought me this beautiful bottle of wine uh, when he came over for dinner one day. And we never got to it. And I brought this thing with me to the beach. So I popped the cork and brought it to the beach. Uh, which was not that far. And it's in the Pacific Ocean, and it's a little bit cool up there. It's not, people aren't just dying to get in the water up there. So it, it's quiet, and it was windy, and I had my headphones, and I had a great playlist. And this bottle of wine, and other things. And um, sitting out there, just enjoying um, this beautiful wine I had, and this beautiful view, and this like, inner sadness and this beautiful playlist I had. And, and there's like odd contentment uh, in that moment. And then it hit me. It's time for the lion tattoo. <laughs> and so I just sort of uh, allowed it all to take place. And I said, well, if, if at any point um, I get turned away, the timing's not right, or I can't get to the play. I, I said, all right, if anything stops me, then I'll stop. But otherwise, I'm going to go do this. And found a great place and they weren't busy. And uh, took me in. We decided, and we we found the right picture and and uh, placed it. And he got to work, and it it really actually didn't hurt too bad on the shoulder. But uh, that was the last one I got. And I'm telling you, I'm itching now to get another one. It, it doesn't stop. I think it's I, I, when you see somebody with a whole arm sleeve. I, I now kind of get it. You go, it's hard to stop that. Like that's a real, that's a real thing. But maybe I have to wait until I'm in Hawaii and I can get a traditional super painful tattoo by some guy hammering a needle into my arm a million times. I mean, not that it has to be the arm or anything. Anyway, my boy Quinn, I think I asked him a couple of weeks ago if he would design one for me. Quinn's a, an incredible artist and I asked him if he would uh, design one. And, but that's kind of a commitment too. What if I look at it and I hate it and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get this. And he's like, great, let's go right now. I'm like, something about it's a stress release it's you're like controlling this permanent thing and you're in charge of it and you're paying for it and you're having an artist do it and it's an experience i would suggest anybody go do this just to try it just to like experience this there's a permanence to it that feels i mean i know people can get tattoos removed all the time but most likely not but there's there's um you can kind of get off on the permanence of it and I think it has a, this idea of like control. There's so many aspects of our life and our careers that we are not in control of. And this private thing is like one tiny thing that you can control in a, in a very um, crazy world where you're not in control. Do you think I've said the word control enough? It's something about um, being back at work with a tattoo that nobody knows about. 
and it's under your shirt or whatever and it's like a little bit bleeding and there's like a plasma that comes up it's like wet <laughs> it's not necessarily there is some blood but it's just moist and you need to keep it uh you know you keep some uh, vaseline on it and, and so it's just sort of like this place that you're very aware of and it's sort of like this secret that nobody else is really aware of it and i've had aching tattoos underneath a tuxedo while I'm standing in front of 3,000 people. And, and there's something about knowing that in the moment that I really enjoy. Uh, a tattoo never, never sounds like a bad idea to me. I'm ready right now. Who wants to go? I'm ready to go. If you haven't, I highly suggest it. Just get something small. Start small. <laughs> I came into my office um, yesterday and I, and I could see that there was something behind the desk that had fallen off the desk. And sure enough, there's my little blue passport. This sorry little thing. Just collecting dust behind my desk because I just have not needed it. And it's just, um, I love the passport. You know, I've had four, I guess, three or four now. And um, uh, it's like this, this little journal, you know. I've talked about my journals and this is another journal. All these little places you've been and and the stamping in and out. Not everybody does it. And not everybody does, you know, not, not everybody puts the stamp in straight and not everybody is so nice with it. And most people are, most border security are looking at your passport with absolute disgust. Like they just, <laughs> they just hate you. When you try to get into Canada, the first thing they say to you when you hand them the passport is what right do you have to be in Canada? <laughs> it's really aggressive. What is your right to be here, sir? And you have to pull out all the paperwork. And I have been I have been sent home from Border Patrol one time in my life because my paperwork wasn't complete. That was my fault. That'll be for another time. That was um, pretty rough. And I had to, it reminded me of this time as I was flipping through it and I could see all the stamps. I had one in there in a, um, from a month that I spent in Russia. And this was, this was, um, this Russia gig was a last minute uh, thing. I had um, I had sort of heard a rumor about it, but I, I wasn't sure if it was happening, and, and we weren't, you know, there was a lot of talk about this maybe not happening and sort of gave up on it. And then all of a sudden, I was in Salzburg in the middle of a production, and I found out that I needed to get to Russia straight away. Now, you think, oh, I just get on a plane in Austria, and I go to Russia, and, and everything's fine. No, it doesn't work like that. At the time, in 2012, you needed a visa to get into Russia. I have no idea what the rules are now, probably way more stringent, but I could get in on a cultural visa last minute, but I had to fly to the United States to get it because the, the Russian embassy in Austria wasn't going to talk to an American. Well, that was impossible because I, I needed to go there directly. And so I got somebody to write a letter in Russia and send it to the embassy in, in uh, Austria and I was allowed in the door <laughs> and to talk to somebody. And it seemed like my papers were in order. Now, a cultural visa is supposed to be free. And um, due to the nature of my needing it now in a country I wasn't supposed to be getting it in, uh, required that I pay a little fee. <laughs> and it's fun to me to know that things can still work this way. Like, it's the Wild West. Like, uh, you're going to have to grease some palms on your way. And sure enough, my cultural visa suddenly cost 250 euros, but it had never cost that before. But I was told the nature of this was going to require me to pay 250 euros. Now, 
I quickly pulled out my credit card, to which, <laughs> to which I learned the credit card machine was down and will be accepting cash today. <laughs> now, I don't want to say that somebody in the Russian embassy took a bribe, but they 100% did. And it's sort of fun that that kind of thing can still exist. you know. And so, with three words of Russian, I left Austria to go and make a recording of La Noce di Figaro. As Figaro, it was hard to turn this one down, and I didn't know anything about this area of Russia, which was called Perm. Now, for most people listening, you know St. Petersburg and Moscow. That is the extent of what you know and heard about Russia. Well, my little town was called Perm, and I had no idea, I didn't even know, I wasn't going to be able to find it on a map. I certainly, it wasn't a place I had ever heard of. And then I learned it wasn't even on maps until 1991. This was a munitions depot and, uh, you know, defense uh, contracting building area for, for, you know, pre-perestroika. This was, this was all, you know, a Cold War munitions city. It wasn't even on maps because they didn't want you to know where it was. And so here I am. This is literally the last stop uh, before the train turns into the uh, this Trans-Siberian Railroad. Okay, so this is the last stop before Siberia literally begins. And it's kind of the separate, the marker between European Russia and Asia Russia. So, what I'm saying is that it's the middle of nowhere. And so we take an overnight flight from Frankfurt, Germany to Moscow. This was a beautiful plane. I had heard terrible things about this. Uh, airline called Aeroflot, which is the Russian national airline. And I had heard questionable things about it, but this, this train, this uh, plane that left Frankfurt was big and beautiful and comfortable. And we left three hours late, but, but, uh, you know, we, we certainly got to Moscow. I didn't eat the 2 AM dinner. That was salmon three ways. Uh, the gentleman next to me definitely ate his. That was tough three-way salmon at 2 a.m. Smelled wrong. He wanted it. He needed his fish. I skipped it. Uh, landed in Moscow. Big, beautiful airport. You think, oh, this is going to be just fine. Well, I needed a smaller plane to get to Perm. This is where everything I had heard about Aeroflot was true. <laughs> this was a domestic plane, and it was uh, two seats on each side, and it might as well have had livestock like floating around the cabin. I would not have been surprised to know that there were like boxes of chickens in the back. There was duct tape holding the fuselage together. I don't mean like duct tape on my seat that was ripped. I mean like duct tape around the windows. <laughs> and now the realization that you're going to Siberia sets in. And you're like, I'm going to be there how long? And we were going for a month. And uh, that's when you start to get a little bit nervous. You're like, wait. Maybe in Moscow, I could get away with three words of Russian, but where I'm going, this is not going to fly. And I knew nothing. I had no knowledge of anything. I knew that somebody was going to pick me up and that there was an opera house and somebody was going to take me to a hotel and, and we were going to make this recording. <laughs> These are only things you can do when you're young and have no idea. Like if somebody asked me to do this now, I go, what? You wouldn't even begin this conversation. But when you're young and say yes to everything, uh, you have no choice. I'm going to Russia. I'm going to Siberia. Let's go. 
And so, um, uh, somebody was at the airport ready to meet me. The air, the, the plane landed, you know, obviously. And, um, there was a nice, uh, uh, person from the, um, opera house that we were going to record in who came to get me and her English was very good. And she put me at ease right away. And, uh, we, we got into a car and we were heading towards, you know, downtown. And, um, I said, is there anything I need to know? You know, just from like a cultural standpoint, is there something I shouldn't know? Like if I, if I cross the street when it says don't cross, am I going to be arrested and disappear forever? You know, I just wanted to know like simple stuff, like things I wouldn't otherwise know. And without hesitating, she says, there's two kinds of taxi cabs here. One is the kind that picks you up and takes you where you want to go. And the other is the kind that picks you up and you disappear forever until your family pays ransom. <laughs> And so you're like, good tip. She says, never get into a taxi cab that I or somebody from the opera house has, hasn't put you in. This is the only, <laughs> this was like the first thing out of her mouth. I'm like, so kidnapping is a thing here? <laughs> I'm six foot four, 240 pounds. Like I really shouldn't be worried about kidnapping, but she, she wanted to impart to me that <laughs> this is a thing. Um, there's only one hotel in town. Um, um, the hotel perm, I think it was called. And I stayed there for a month and, um, it seemed like they, it was like an old hotel that it didn't have a key card. It had keys. And I was convinced that somebody was watching me because as soon as I would get into the, uh, the hotel room every day, the phone would ring and it would be the front desk with some sort of mundane, uh, there's a message for you or there's a, uh, there's a schedule for you. Like the things that somebody would leave at the counter, they would always call me the second I hit that room. And I thought I am a hundred percent being watched. I didn't understand how anybody could see that I had, you know, it was a big, it was a big hotel, like fairly big. Uh, and it wasn't a key card. I, it wasn't like I hit a key card and then somebody at the desk knew I was there. Like I had a real key and they still knew when I would get in that room, that phone would ring without, <laughs> I would expect it. It was strange if it didn't, you know, the few times it didn't, it was strange. And of course, the the Russian people who I didn't know, I only I had, I had some Russian friends, but I didn't know, I had never lived there among them. They're wonderful, of course. Invite you into their home. They're very caring. They're very American-like. Anybody who has a fear of what a Russian is like, it's, it's exactly the same as an American. They want to be friendly right away. They want to be welcoming right away. You know, I think we both have these terrible misconceptions about each other and these stereotypes that we hold in our heads, but they're, they're just not true. They're just not true. And um, I, had a, I had a great time. The water ran brown in the hotel the whole time I was there. Uh, there was no two ways about that. I was told very specifically not to brush my teeth with the water in the hotel, but to get some bottled water. So, you know, there were strange things like that, but the people were lovely. And we made our recording, and I'm proud of it, and it, uh, it still exists today. And, and I would, if I was still... If it was still 10 years ago, I would do it again. I don't, I don't know if I would do it again now. I might leave this for a, for a, a young man who needed an adventure. Uh, I did have to learn the word kurita, which means chicken. And I had to learn that word because I needed to eat. <laughs> and uh, there, was, there was one grocery store, and I didn't find it for six days. <laughs> and when I finally did, and, and I mean, by grocery store, I mean... Um, it was about as big as an American Seven Eleven. That was the grocery store, and um, you know, it was like 
it was whatever they had that day. It wasn't like they kept regular things in stock. It was like, today we have pears. And there'd be like this bin of old pears. And um, there was a surprising amount of mayonnaise, like tons of mayonnaise. And I, and I wondered, if, I thought, I think we're probably putting mayonnaise on a lot of things just to keep calorie count high because uh, food was scarce uh, comparatively, you know, to these gigantic grocery stores that we have here. Uh, when you come home from a place like that, you realize that the grocery stores in America are phenomenal. It was still, it was like the last European holdout to allow smoking indoors. It, it was kind of amazing. You know, all of a sudden when, when Europe sort of caught up uh, to America and, and banned smoking indoors, it was like a whole change. You know, just all of a sudden you didn't feel like you needed to throw your clothes out and you feel like you could go to dinner and... and um, I mean, it was just amazing when, when Europe caught up and then uh, Russia was a little bit behind that. And so when we were there, uh, there was still smoking everywhere in the restaurants, in the, in the theater, it was everywhere. There was no, there was no, no smoking area. It was all smoking all the time. And you forget how awful that is. And we're so lucky here. Like the, if somebody's walking past you on the street with a cigarette, you, I'm offended. Like here, we're like offended by this smell, but it wasn't that long ago that, you know, if you were having a hamburger in Burger King, somebody was smoking right next to you. Like that's, that's not that far ago, but it's weird how something that was so regular, uh, became completely taboo. And then to go step back into it for a second, you're like, where the hell am I? This is a sushi restaurant. And this guy's like a foot away from me. And, and he's, and he's, you know, three cigarettes in, he hasn't even started eating. It's really weird. What was so amazing about uh, this process, and we, we worked with this um, uh, fantastic orchestra, is they, they have no unions there. There's no worker protection. And, and um, this orchestra just worked. There was no, you know, the call time was 11 a.m., and we would finish somewhere between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. And there was not... There were no planned breaks like we're so used to planned breaks here with the unions and, and you know, no more than six hours a day or whatever the, whatever the current contract is. But over there, they had none of that. So it would be nothing for the orchestra to put in a 15-hour day. Nothing. And they would barely break. And they had rehearsed so much because they were, again, there's just no rules on the working over there. And so they had rehearsed so much that the string players would not only stand while we were recording they would also not use music. And that's a lot of notes. I mean, Le Nozzi is no joke. It's a long four-hour show. And these uh, string players would literally not have scores in front of them, and they would stand while we recorded. I don't mean cellos, but, uh, you know, violins and violas were standing, which was phenomenal. They had such a work ethic. It's sort of fun to be in a, in a country like that because the language is so foreign to you that you don't hear a word that sounds familiar. You don't, you don't hear a word that is um, familiar in that you can relate to somebody. Every word sounds like gibberish. And what ends up happening for me is that I have this internal monologue the whole time I'm there. And it's like Anthony Bourdain, you know, on no reservations. Like I'm, I'm in this strange place and I'm having this inner monologue of everything I'm seeing and doing. And I can remember this really specifically because once you're in a, a country like this for a long time, you, you tend not to get too surprised by some of the things that you're seeing. And um, something about Perm that was very interesting is that there were packs of dogs that roamed the streets. 
And I mean like five, six, eight, and they would run in a pack. And they weren't like lost dogs that didn't have their collars. They were just wild dogs. I don't think they were wolves, but they were dogs. And at night you would see them run right across the street, a big group of them, or run through the park. And the first time you're on it, you're like, the hell is happening right now? You can't, it's dark. Are those dogs? Are those pigs? What the fuck is that? And uh, it turns out to be a, that this is like pretty common that I don't know if they're pets who are abandoned, then procreate. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but there was packs of dogs uh, running. And, and so in these moments, the internal monologue is like, I'm pretty sure that's just a pack of dogs. Cool. Nothing wrong with that. Totally normal. I'm just going to keep walking to my hotel. Don't get in that cab. Definitely don't get in that cab. Let's go have some kuritsa for the eighth day in a row. Because that's what the grocery store has. It was like a chicken that was already made. Like I could just buy the whole chicken. <laughs> so in my hotel room for a month with no kitchen, I did have a small refrigerator. Uh, I was eating chicken and whatever uh, fruit I could get my hands on. <laughs> and mayonnaise. <laughs> but I left Russia with a fantastic recording and I was like 12 pounds lighter, which is helpful. And um, that's my Russian story. It started off with a, a free cultural visa that cost me 250 euros. And that feels like episode five. Episode five. This happened quick. Today is Monday, uh, November 2nd, and that happened quick. Now it just feels like it's just going to be Christmas now. Uh, the weeks are going by fast. I don't know how you're feeling, but they're going by fast for me. And I'm having a great time. Thanks for listening. You know, twice a week. That seems like the way to go. Thanks to my buddy Quinn Kelsey for the intro this morning. You already follow Quinn. You don't need to follow him. You don't need me to tell you to follow him, but he's on everything all the time. Instagrams and Facebooks. And he's um, uh, probably the greatest living Verdi baritone we have. And he's in the right throne of the greats. And uh, I'm lucky every time I see my brother and I, and I look forward to seeing him soon. Oh my God, I forgot. Tomorrow is election day. I am not looking at any of that bullshit. Fucking skip it. This is poison. Don't look. One way or the other, God bless America. Keep moving forward. I'm not looking at it. Episode five, everybody. CVH podcast. Find me uh, on Instagram at VanHornCVH and my fake Facebook fan page, which is not updated, and my website, ChristianVanHorn.com. And we'll see you later in the week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>